Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. We continue in our study of the Old Testament, where I hope that you are, are seeing God's grace demonstrated from the very beginning to the very end. I've appreciated some of the responses that I've heard, uh, that some of you have felt blessed. I was certainly blessed last week as Camper shared in this, and will again, and uh, and so as we are able to just see God's unity from beginning to end. A few weeks ago, we saw God's deliverance of his people from their bondage and their slavery that was in Egypt. And they left Egypt, and God has now delivered them to the cusp of the promised land. They are right on the edge as we come to Numbers chapter 13. They can see it from there. They are right, in, right on the edge of it and waiting to... Uh, waiting to take the next step in, in God's promise and, and God's command. And that's where we find ourselves when we come to the text this morning. We'll be looking some in verse, uh, both, both chapters. Well, we won't be reading both uh, fully this morning. But we'll begin our reading in verse 1 of chapter 13. Hear the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them, all of them uh, men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Ori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Igal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulon, Gadiel, the son of Sodai. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gedi, the son of Susai. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamaliel. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabai, the son of Vafsai. From the tribe of Gad, Geuel, the son of Machai. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Lebo, Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahimon, Sheshai, and Talamai, the descendants of Anak were there. 
Hebron was built seven years before uh, Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eskel and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between the two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Esco because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the man who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts, that we may see what you would have us to see, that we would love you all the more as we realize how great your love is as you continue to be at work in us and through us. Lord, bless us, strengthen us, and shape us that we may be more and more like Jesus as your word not only informs us, but it forms our very hearts and lives. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, who is our word incarnated. Amen. I want to begin this morning by giving you a quote to see what you think of these words. The, the, the quote comes from the ancient Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, although who it's from is really irrelevant, but... I don't want to be accused of plagiarizing and Marcus Aurelius' family coming and suing me for anything. So, um, but here's the quote. Every man's life lies within the present, for the past is spent and done with, and the future is uncertain. Now, I don't know what you think of those words. I'm not even sure what I think of all of those words. I've been thinking about it and looking at it for the better part of the week. But what I do know is that these words give a a very accurate picture of the attitude and the perspective of the people of Israel in Numbers, here in Numbers 13. God had delivered his people according to his promise. He had delivered them out of bondage in Egypt through a, a series of miraculous actions through plagues and ultimately Uh, having them delivered. Not only did he deliver them so that they had the answer to their prayer that they were set free from their bondage and their slavery. They were essentially kicked out and paid to leave. 400 years, these people were crying out to God and saying, Lord, just let us get away. Let us leave. Just let us go. Stop this oppression. Let us go. And they would have 
just been glad to have just had an open door where they could go and be safe. The way God worked it out in his time and for his purpose and for their benefit, when the time came for Israel to go, it was the Egyptians who were saying to them, just go. And if there's anything you want, take it. Take our jewels, take our cattle, just take it. Just take everything and go. And so they were delivered. Not only were they set free from their bondage, but they were enriched at the hands of the very people who had oppressed them because God was working in a powerful way not only to break down the barriers, but in the hearts of the people. While we didn't study it, most are familiar with the story that as they had been delivered in that miraculous way, they came to a point where they'd run out of land. They came to the edge of the Red Sea, and there had been a change of heart in Egypt. The heart in Pharaoh's heart had been hardened. He sent the most powerful army in the world after these people who had just left and left with all of their goods. And their backs up against the sea and facing the army that was coming, the Lord opens up the Red Sea allowing his people to pass on dry land. And when the army came to follow them, the Lord closed the sea back up and wiped out the most powerful army in the world. Twice delivered. In accordance with the promise that was made not even first to Abraham, but the promise that God had said is through, this, through, uh, through Abraham's seed, I will bless the entire earth. All of Abraham's children uh, are the people of Israel. Abraham being promised that they would be preserved. There would be... A, 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 there was a, the fulfillment of the promises taking place even in their day-to-day lives, and they're delivered, and now here they are delivered right to the edge of the promised land, just as he had promised Abraham that he would give a land to Abraham's descendants. And so here they sit, and they camp. And here it's God comes to Moses, and he, he instructs Moses to send out spies to scout out the land. And so the spies go out, and they see when they go out that the land is everything God said that it would be. The land is everything that anybody could possibly hope that it could be. And so they come back with their report. So everything is good, right? We've checked out the land. It's good. Call the movers, pack the vans, close close on the deal, and we're moving in. No. Israel balks. They start but then they, for some reason, stop. And they don't follow through with what they were instructed to do. Why? In one sense, it has to do with the reports, because there there was a complete agreement in terms of the the land being good, at least from those who had spied it out. But there were two reports that came back to Israel from the people we're talking about. There was a minority report that Caleb gave, and he said, land's good, let's go. But there was a majority report that also came back and said, well, the land is good, but we see some potential complications here that we had not anticipated. I don't see us taking it. Let's, uh, let's just hold off and see if God will offer us a better deal. There's something better is bound to come along because it seems like this one might be a little more costly than we were intending. And so Israel, listening to the masses of the people, listening to the majority report, they balked. They didn't follow through with what they had begun. They had been delivered in miraculous ways, seeing the power of God. They knew the promise of God. They even saw that God had instructed uh, them in in a way to step forward in order to receive the promise that they had. They should have been fortified with tremendous faith, that close to seeing God at work, and yet they didn't. What happened? The simple answer is life happened. They had seen the power of God. They were delivered one day, but the next day presents difficulties, and the difficulties cultivate doubt. 
And so while they had the opportunity, they hesitated, they doubted, and they feared. You ever feel that way? I do. I do all the time. In fact, it's probably, no probably about it, it's among my greatest weaknesses. In one sense, I've been blessed, and in, in, in among the gifts that God has given me, I have a, a very vivid picture of what God wants to do, and a very real sense of God being at work in the world. I have very real recollections of how God has delivered me, not just initially in the time of my conversion and salvation. I've been blessed to be, realize how God was at work even prior to that, sovereignly, uh, moving even against my will, my family in different parts of the country and placing me in circumstances and in relationships where I would be able to see the reality of the gospel different than I was seeing it even as a younger child. I vividly remember many times where I thought I'd come to the end of my road, that I was either on my own foolishness or circumstances that I had faced were just going to do me in, didn't know what was going to happen, and every time God has delivered, and I can even tell you many of ways, many stories, and, and how he has delivered. And so I'm very well aware and have been blessed to have a good understanding of God's power and faithfulness. And yet new challenges arise. And there are obstacles in the way of what I know that God wants me to do. And I begin to doubt, doubt myself and fear. And fear leads to other doubts and to delay. I ought to know better, and I do know better, and I don't know, but I don't do any better. It's a recurring theme and a very real weakness that I have. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I'm alone in that. Shakespeare put that kind of a condition in, in I think, in very, very clear words when he said, to those of who struggle with issues of fear and doubt. Our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we might win by fearing to attempt. That's where Israel was. That's where I find myself over and over again. Knowing God is good, knowing what God has done, but yet something that seems hard, difficult, almost impossible leads to fear and doubt stopping it, which makes me hesitate to attempt. And if I don't attempt, I will not receive the good that God has promised. Well, as we look at this text this morning, it's very simply this. We need to understand this text is simply about what happens when life happens. So the question is not whether or not you and I will have doubts. You will. I do. G.K. Chesterton once noted that only materialists and madmen never have doubts. I don't know why materialists don't have doubts. But madmen that I get. Because anyone who thinks that everything is going to go their own way, anyone who is constantly certain isn't dealing in reality. It's just not the way that life works. As we go through life, we're going to experience circumstances that don't go our way. It's not like we have that come-to-Jesus moment and then the dice always turn up in our favor. It's not like God has revealed himself to be like a genie so that every time we take our Bibles and we rub it, he grants us our wish. 
In fact, quite the opposite. God has said that we can expect in this life to have struggles and hardships. And that's something that many Christians struggle with. They just have not comprehended that. And, and partly because there are people out there that will help you misunderstand and tell you that God has promised this in this life. It's a lie. But many people have come to Christ and come to faith in Christ with that understanding. And so they're very confused when things go wrong. They receive Jesus assuming that from here on out, nothing would go wrong. And so when things happen, when things do go wrong, they begin to wonder, what happened? And many begin to wonder, did I do something? Did I do something wrong? And they begin searching within themselves as to whether or not they are the cause of all the troubles that they see in the world that have some connection with them. If you wrestle with that issue, if you struggle with that, one of the things that I would just encourage you to just ask yourself somewhat regularly is this. If we come to Jesus so that everything will go our way, have we really come to Jesus because of who he is, the creator of creation, the one who has loved us, the redeemer, the glorious king? Have we come to Jesus because of who he is? Have we come to Jesus to use him for what we want? Are we truly giving ourselves in worship of him and serving him, or are we playing nice with him when we came in order to get him to do our bidding? Now, when I say it in that crass way, I know that if we wrestle with this, you realize it's not what we, we wanted. But nevertheless, a number of people get confused about that. And one of the reasons is because they just, we just don't, we have a difficult time understanding that hardships come. One way that will help us to understand this is if we can get through our minds and, and realize that deliverance is not a once and done thing. It's a process. We get this confused, and some of us who preach probably help you to misunderstand this, but there are a couple of theological terms that are important for us to understand. So for those of you who hate the big theological terms, I'll apologize in advance, but I'm really not sorry. I'm just going to use them anyway because we need to understand them. And, but they are both vitally important, but they are often confused. And if we can come to grips with these two terms, their relationship and their distinctions, it might help us, at least in the process of dealing with this issue of doubt and fear and wondering, why things are not going the way that we think they would, they should. The first term is justification, the other term is sanctification. They are in, inseparably related, but they are also very different. Our catechism does a wonderful job in explaining it in this way, and it's very subtle if you've not studied it or, or thought about it in these terms, but our catechism defines justification as the act of God's free grace, whereby we're pardoned from our sin, and sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we die to sin and we grow in Christ's righteousness. So there's two key words that are very different but they're very important. Uh, one is an act, it's done, and the other is a work, it's a process, an ongoing thing. They are inseparably related, but they are different. The justification is the act of our deliverance. At the moment that we were believed, we were delivered from the bondage of our sin as very real as Israel was delivered from the bondage of slavery from Egypt. In a miraculous way that's even greater than the fact that God brought plagues, he took you and I who were dead and made us alive. And that happened like that. At the moment we believed, we were truly and, 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 and delivered. And yet the deliverance continues. Everyone who has been justified, there is also sanctified. There is a process that we live. It comes from the end, from the point of the, of the moment that we are delivered until we are ultimately delivered, ultimately rescued, until the deliverance is done. 
And that does not happen in this life. And so there's a process. We would understand it with an illustration this way. If you happen to be on a, a cruise and the, and the boat uh, became disabled, I know that's hard to imagine uh, if you watch the news, but imagine a boat, but we're going to change it up a little bit this way, and rather than just kind of floating out there at sea for weeks, the Coast Guard was actually able to get to you and transfer everybody from the disabled boat to their boat and bring you back ashore. The moment that the Coast Guard got to your boat, the moment that the last passenger on the disabled boat got onto the Coast Guard boat, you have been rescued. You have been delivered. That is the freedom that you feel. You have the hope and the assurance, and you know things are different. You're no longer on a dead boat. You are on a living, on a live boat, and things are vastly different. That is an action. that happens immediately. You are delivered. And yet you're not delivered until they actually get to shore. You're in the process of that deliverance. And you have the hope and the assurance that it will get there because it's a, of the vessel that you're in. But it is very different. And the same is true of our lives. We have been truly delivered at the moment we have believed. We are no longer under bondage. We have been saved. Whatever you, word you want to use to describe it, it has happened. And nothing will stop it from coming to its completion. Jesus has promised whoever the Father has given me, nobody is going to take them from my hand. It's a promise. It's a reality. Not rooted in our strength, but in the strength of God. But it wouldn't even be a question if once you were delivered, the whole thing was over and done with. The reason that that was needed to be said is because we are prone to doubt. People are prone to doubt. We need to understand that there is the action and there is the process and they work together. And we've been told that in our process, there will be difficulties. Another reason that people have difficulty in understanding that is because maybe something we've learned in Sunday school. So often, at least I know early in my days uh, as a Christian, I, I would hear of the promised land where Israel is, is ready to embark in. And I would hear the promised land is a picture of heaven that is yet to come. And I want to tell you that's what's wrong. That's not what promised land is. The promised land is not a picture of heaven to come. The promised land is a picture of our sanctification as it is. And the reason I can say that, and even if you have doubts, I'm going to ask you a question that I hope will, help, will convert you into understanding that picture. How many enemies do you anticipate having in heaven? How many people do you think you're going to have to go in and kill before it's a pleasant place to be? But that's what God is saying. Here's the promise. Here's the land. And yet, there are obstacles. There are things that you need to do. You need to go out and clear this land. It doesn't diminish its beauty, its potential, its glory, nor the graciousness of the gift. But it says that there are difficulties, thorns, at this point in time in their history that they must be able to deal with in order to enjoy the benefits of the promise. That's what our life is like day in and day out once we've come to Christ. We have the reality of the deliverance. We have a taste of what will come, but we have difficulties in this life. Some because we live in a broken and fallen world. Others because we are still living out the effects of our own brokenness and sin that while we've been forgiven of and delivered from its ultimate power, it's still has a recurring effect and an ongoing effect on our lives. And so some of the problems we have are because of other sin. Some of it is because of our own sin. But that's the day-to-day life that's common for everyone. And if we understand that, it will help us in dealing with our own doubts and our fears. But if you are like me and, and you are one who periodically has doubts leading to fear or fears leading to doubt when life happens, I want you to hear me say this. There is nothing inherently wrong with doubt. The disciples doubted. 
not just before they really knew who Jesus was, but they, doubt, they doubted even after they were commissioned, even after the resurrection. John the Baptist doubted. John, who was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. John, who was raised up as the forerunner of the coming Messiah. John, who proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God. One is coming that I'm not worthy to even tie his shoes. And as he sees his cousin coming, he says, there's the Lamb of God. And he tells all the ones who are following him, look, I need to decrease. He must increase. Go with him. Amazing graciousness, passion, assurance, because he turned everybody over. Fast forward in his life, when life happened and didn't go the way he thought it should. When John, being faithful to God, confronted the king and said, you know what? You uh, shouldn't off your brother and marry his wife. Apparently some kings don't take that kind of talk well, so this one didn't. And so John was put into prison. And as he's in prison, not knowing what his fate would be, John sends some of those who were his friends to Jesus and says this, ask Jesus this question. Are you really the one that we were expecting? Or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus' response to this is, is this, when he hears the question, not just in, out of ignorance, but they come and ask Jesus this question, and Jesus' response looks at everybody around. He says, I tell you what, among men who have been born, there's no one better than John. This is Jesus' response to John's doubt, his lack of understanding. And so if you wrestle with doubt, we need to understand that doubts reveal our weakness, our true condition. Our true condition is fallen finite understanding. We are prone to doubt because we do not understand. But doubts then remind us of our need of one greater than ourselves to deliver us. It drives us back to the one who has already delivered us and is in the process of delivering us, who has promised to never let go of us. Doubts remind us that we cannot rest on ourselves. It'd be a very foolish thing to leave here today and say, now I know I will never doubt again. The question is not whether you will doubt. The question is, what do you do with your doubts? And there are two ways, two responses to doubt. Both are reflected in this text. One is to simply see the obstacles and say, it's too big, I can't do it. And the other is to say, we can do it. I don't have any idea how, but we can do it. Now Israel reflects here the first, that this is too big. The spies that went out that agreed the land was good, it says in our text that they came back when Caleb had explained something, they ratcheted up their report, the intensity of it, said they gave a bad report to the people as people were processing the two reports. Remember Joseph? We studied that a few weeks ago, and he gave a bad report about his brothers to his father. The Hebrew word there connotes that it's not just a matter of he told about the difficulties and the hardship. He told half-truths and outright lies, and what the people did here as well. They came back and they gave a bad report filled with half-truths and, and lies in order to get the people to side with them so that they could feed their fears rather than face their fears. And as reprehensible as what they did seems to be, I think the question that we should ask ourselves is, do I do this? Do you ever find yourself when something difficult comes and, and you find yourself perhaps speaking to yourself or maybe speaking to others and say, look, I know 
This is what God said he wanted, but as I look at it, there's no way. Because for to happen what God says is going to happen, this would have to happen, and then this would have to happen. And there's just no way I can do that. As we talk to ourselves, we find ourselves coming to the end of that road, and we say either to ourselves or out loud, and if I can't do that, Maybe that's not what God wanted for me after all. We apply this in every aspect of our lives. There are certain things in life that we know God wants. And so we can choke that voice of doubt out right away. One of them might be marriage. God's pretty clear. What God has brought together, let nobody tear apart. Now, we tend to think of outside forces, and so we don't let the neighbors get involved. We don't whatever. The fact is, the biggest problem in my marriage is me, and I can't tear it apart, and i got to deal with that, that nobody tear it apart. So when we face hardships in marriage, and if you are not yet married, your secret is you will. Um, the answer is not, this is hard. Maybe that's not what God wanted for me. The answer is fight. Step forward. Do what God wants you to do. We know because God has been very clear about the standard. In a broader sense of that, we say the same thing is true about mission. God has said, go to the ends of the earth, make disciples of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And wherever you happen to be locally, realize I've put you in that particular community, in that particular place, that you will bless the people who are around you. You will serve their needs. You'll demonstrate the love of Christ in very simple and practical ways. You will love them, and you will be engaged in mission. Now, when we think of it in a broad topic, most of us are here, are evangelical. We have no problem with that. We deal with it. But when you get to the nitty-gritty and you start thinking, well, how are we going to do that? That's hard. That's when we begin to ask ourselves, are we sure that this is what God wanted? You know, this isn't what I signed up for. See, I signed up to be delivered from bondage, not to do anything hard. And then we find ourselves responding to the authority of our doubts in one of three faithless ways. One is the desire to go back. That's what Israel, not here, but elsewhere did. Things got hard. They said, you know what? I think that slavery thing was better. We were crying for 400 years to get out of it. We hated it. But you know what? It seems like it's better than what's before us right now. So let's just go back. And how many of us are prone to go back into things that we know are wrong simply because we are afraid of what might be before us? The other is to stay put. That's what they wanted to do here. All right, God says go. I don't think so. That's scary. So we'll just stay in here and see if God comes up with another offer, another plan, one that's more to my liking. So we just, we've, we've been delivered. We know that. We still trust God can do things, but we're going to wait till God comes to do something that isn't seeming so hard. And the other is to move on to something else. God says this, I don't think so, God, but that door looks open, so I think I'll go here. It's kind of like the game show is the way that I tend to look at it, at least in my own life. A lot of times I know what God has said. I know what God has called me to do. But then I look, there's door number one, door number two, door number three. I don't know what's behind door number one, door number two, or door number three, but it's got to be better than what the, the gift I got right now. And so I'm going to pick one of those numbers, Lord, and I'm willing to exchange and find out what's coming later. These are faithless responses. On the other hand, we have Caleb's faith. Caleb says, hey, guys, look, I know that it looks tough. 
I don't know exactly how we're going to do this, but I do know this. God said that he was going to give us the land, and it's God who sent us to go spy in the land. We've seen God at work in a couple of different ways, not even just in delivering us before that, but God has been speaking. God has been guiding. God has been directing us. I believe God wanted Caleb to give this report to Israel, Joshua with him, not just to convince the people, but in order to give them a vision for hope because God had set it up in their sanctification that they were going to be dealing with both the promises and some difficult things before them. That's life in this world. And so they came to the fork in the road where obedience was one way, disobedience is the other, and the only way that we're going to have the courage to choose obedience is we have hope and a vision of God's promise before us. But we also need to see in Caleb's faith something very different because I can look at Caleb and say, that's great, I'm glad there are men like that. But I don't always feel, especially in my moments of fear, I don't feel like him. We need to realize there is a huge difference between I can do it and God promised it. If you trust in yourself, no wonder you doubt. We know we have limitations. But when we put faith in God's promise, we are able to see some amazing things happen when we are willing to step out in faithful obedience. Now, if I left you there right now, that would inspire you until life happened, which would be about an hour. And it wouldn't be very helpful. What do we need to do to cultivate that kind of faith? A couple of things. First is something that I, I learned from Tim Keller. So I shared in the first service, anything intelligent I say, I probably stole from him, so that's just a given. But um, it's just simply this, doubt your doubts. It sounds odd, I know, but it, it does make a lot of sense. So when we come to the fork in the road, we have God's promises on one side, and we have our doubts and our fear on the other side. And we're choosing. Our tendency is to do this. Well, I know God has said this. I know God has promises. I know what God has done in the past, but I'm not sure that God is actually going to deliver. And so we make God prove to us all over again that this will be safe and this will be okay. God has to jump through our hoops. On the other hand, when we fear, which is generated from within ourselves, and sometimes our fears are reasonable, rational, because what we see in this world are scary. But we begin to cultivate doubts, and we never ask our doubts why they have such authority. What is the authority by which you work? Why is it that we answer our doubts and answer in fear, and we don't even ask them to answer any questions, but we ask God to answer the questions? If we learn that we are so prone to do that, and we begin to doubt our doubts, and we realize just because I have doubts doesn't mean they're right. And make your doubts prove themselves to you and gain wisdom that way, and standing on the promises of God, we begin to disarm the power that doubts have over our minds and our hearts, at least the things that keep us from stepping forward with God. Doesn't mean we won't step forward with some fear or some trepidation, because difficulty is difficulty, hard is hard. But when we doubt our doubts, we do disarm them and, and, and minimize their power. And then along with doubting our doubts, we remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. In Numbers 14, moving ahead, we won't read it for sake of time, but Israel, here's the two reports. They said, I think we'll go with the majority report. We're not going in there. Israel rebels. God is angry with their flat-out disobedience, their lack of faithfulness and lack of faith. And he approaches Moses and says to Moses, we find it in verse 11, 
And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? The word despise does not mean hate. The word despise means doesn't consider worthy of affection or attention. So how long will these people not consider me worthy and not trust me? How long will these people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have done among them. And God's coming to Moses and asking this question about the people that Moses is leading. Be Moses for a moment. And God's asking you, how long are they going to behave this way? How long are they going to have this attitude? You think Moses has any idea? I mean, Moses says, Pete's me, they're your people, Lord. I didn't want the job in the first place. You made me do it. It's not that God is saying, you know, look, I'm trying to figure this out. Is it a month? Do you think you'll whip him into shape soon? God's not actually asking Moses. God's asking a rhetorical question so that Moses can ask, how long will we be faithless? So that the people, so that we will ask, how long are we going to do this? How long are we going to live driven and controlled by doubt and fear and not by faith in the promises of God? How long? And I don't know the answer for my own life. I certainly don't know the answer for you. But when we ask ourselves the question, we realize we, we, there is something that's important for us to consider. One of the things that we need to realize is the fuel for faith is the faithfulness of God. In other words, our faith is fueled by realizing how God has remained faithful even when we've been faithless. If you've ever experienced God's faithfulness and his deliverance, you need to cling to that. You need to remember what God has done. And so when you're facing difficult situations in the future, you're able to say to yourself, and perhaps in prayer, I don't know how God, how, God, how you will show up here this time. I don't know how you'll show up here, but you showed up there. And I'm banking that you'll do it again. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever God did something powerful and miraculous, he would tell the people to gather the stones and create little monuments. There were you know, little monuments scattered all throughout that area. So that every time the people would pass by and they would see a little pile, they would say, okay, now what was it God did here? Or remember, God did something tremendous. And they're scattered all over the place as visible reminders of God's faithfulness, God's power, God's deliverance, to remind them that they should have faith and trusting in God for the next step. Every time in your life that God has delivered you, you can think that you just thought you were undone, you have a little stone. It's a marker in your life that you need to go back to and remember, God showed up here, God showed up here, God showed up here, and all of them become little monuments in your life that as you look at them, they become a huge reminder God is faithful to his promise, and he has been faithful to you. And when you know that God has been faithful in the past, and you're reminding yourself of that, especially when you've disarmed your doubts by doubting them in the first place, now you're reinforcing faith and saying, here's what God has done. Why would I doubt that he would do what he says he's going to do? He didn't say it wouldn't be hard, but he did say he would deliver, and he would, re he would do in me what he said he would do. And so the little stones become faith. Ultimately, we must remember that if we have any lingering doubts, God's faithfulness to all mankind is perfectly and completely demonstrated on the cross. If you have any question about how God is going to treat lack of faith, any question about how God is going to respond to faithlessness, any question about how God is going to respond to rebelliousness, any question about how God is going to respond to those who 
you know what? I know you're there, God, but I'll get to you later. And we start feeling the weight of that. If we have any question about that, we look to the cross because there we see perfectly demonstrated. Here's how God responds to that kind of people, people like you and me. He says, I love you, and I gave my life for you so that you will be mine. I paid the entire price. He is so committed that he has given his son who volunteered to come. That's how we know God has been faithful. That's how we know that God will be faithful. That's our hope. That's our fuel. That's how we move forward. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for how beautifully you have woven in principles of life to your word and remind us that the answer for us always is understanding different aspects of the gospel. Father, may that gospel grab a hold of us, shape us and change us so that as we deal with our fear, particularly those of us who are more prone to it perhaps than others, that just as Christ was crucified on the cross, may that cross crucify our faithlessness. That we would be set free, not only from our guilt, but free to walk with you in joy, to worship you, and to experience your presence. Lord, lead us, we pray, to fulfill all that you have called us to do. Give us your grace that we will overcome our fear. And point us to Jesus, who is our strength, our salvation, our shepherd who is with us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, may our hearts to trust in you bring you joy. I pray in Jesus. Amen.